0: Hello and welcome to the first episode in the Linklater's Competition Litigation podcast series. I'm Serena Williams and I'm joined by my colleague, James Hannah. We are Competition Litigation Specialists in Linklater's London Dispute Resolution Practice, and both have extensive experience in the Competition Litigation sphere, an area where we've seen huge growth over recent years.
1: Thanks Serena, we certainly have. Um, now throughout this series, and with the help of our colleagues and some specialist guest speakers, We hope to share with you all the key considerations and updates in the UK competition litigation market, including litigation funding, collective actions, jurisdiction, applicable law, limitation, disclosure and confidentiality, factual and expert evidence, and the pass on defence.
0: So we've got a lot to cover. And in this first episode, we're going to provide you with the background to competition litigation in the UK. The types of conduct that can lead to private enforcement damages claims, the types of claims that can be brought, and the particularities of the UK legal system that have led it to being one of the most popular forums for competition damages actions in Europe. But first, let's kick off by answering an all-important question. James, what do we actually mean when we say competition litigation?
1: That is a very good question, Serena. Now the phrase competition litigation covers private enforcement actions brought by claimants before the courts based on an alleged infringement of competition law usually seeking financial compensation for losses resulting from that alleged infringement. Now to put it in in its context it differs from and usually comes after the public enforcement process which is of course carried out by regulators like the European Commission or the Competition and Markets Authority here in the UK. Who have powers to investigate, impose conditions on and fine companies who are found to have breached competition law. Whereas what we're talking about are claims by market participants who allege that they have been affected by those infringements.
0: So you may be wondering what types of behaviour can lead to private competition damages actions being brought. Well the types of behaviour giving rise to enforcement action can largely be grouped into two categories. First, agreements or practices that restrict competition, such as a cartel, and secondly, abuse of a dominant position. You may have heard these referred to as Article 101 or Article 102 infringements. Those are the relevant articles of EU law, and they refer to the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union. Or you may have heard them referred to as Chapter 1 or Chapter 2 infringements, which are the equivalents under English law, referring to the Competition Act 1998. We won't go into details of what each type of conduct entails, but it's important to remember that neither type of conduct requires any direct intention by the parties involved in order for it to be considered anti-competitive, as long as it has anti-competitive effects. I think it's fair to say that claims for Article 101 or Chapter 1 infringements have been more common to date, but we're seeing a big rise in Article 102 and Chapter 2 claims, particularly against big tech companies.
1: Indeed, Uh, and public enforcers are certainly looking to use competition law to target big tech companies, and the scale of the operations of those businesses is such that any infringements found could result in very substantial adverse findings in private claims. Um, And speaking for myself, those kinds of claims and the related regulatory proceedings are certainly taking up more and more of my time. Now, I think it's worth briefly mentioning that there are two main types of private enforcement actions that can be brought so-called follow-on and standalone actions. Now, true to their name, follow-on claims are brought following a public enforcement decision from a regulator which identifies an infringement of competition law. These types of actions are popular with claimants primarily because they can rely on the regulator's decision and they don't have to do the heavy lifting in proving that there has been an infringement of competition law themselves. They just rely on the regulator's decision and then their claim is largely focused on proving that a loss has been caused standalone claims are you guessed it standalone they don't follow on from any previous infringement decisions and that means that the claimants will have to prove the existence of an infringement as well as the loss that they suffered as a as a result of said infringement now in reality what we typically see is claimants bringing hybrid claims so a mix of both follow on and standalone and the way this will usually work is that a claimant will have Uh, a regulatory decision at the core of their claim, they will then allege that the infringement goes beyond what the regulator has found, whether this be in terms of geography, timeframe, or the parties involved.
0: And we may consider collective actions as a separate type of action commonly used for competition damages claims. But given that those actions are developing incredibly quickly, can have huge significant financial implications and are fundamentally reshaping the UK competition litigation sphere. We've dedicated an entire episode to them later in the series. So for now, we'll just leave you in suspense.
1: Suspense indeed. Uh, In the meantime, it's worth saying a few words on what makes the UK a unique and popular forum for competition litigation claims, starting with the courts themselves. Now in the UK, claimants generally have a choice of court either the High Court or the Competition Appeal Tribunal, which we commonly refer to as the CAT. Now judges in both courts are very experienced and there is some overlap between them, but the CAT is a specialized tribunal that is designed to deal exclusively with competition claims. It has its own procedural rules and expert panelists, such as economists that sit alongside judges. A recent trend amongst direct purchaser claims in particular has been for claims to be commenced in the High Court transferred across to the cat as after the close of pleadings.
0: And the UK is also a popular forum for bringing private damages actions in light of its extensive disclosure regime, which means claimants are more likely to get their hands on documents that will help prove their case, which can be especially important in cartel damages claims or standalone actions, given the informational imbalance between the parties. Other incentives to come to the UK are our loser pays the winners costs rule and the UK court's willingness to accept jurisdiction. Another point that we'll hear more about later in the series.
1: We will indeed. Uh, Now the attraction of the UK legal system for competition damages claims has led to a number of large US claimant law firms entering the market over the last 10 to 15 years and actively lobbying for and drumming up competition claims. It's also led to UK law, law firms entering that market. Now, their job has been made much easier in recent years, with the abundance of litigation funding available for competition claims. And we'll be hearing more about that in our next episode.
0: So much to look forward to. The UK clearly has a lot going for it as a hub for competition litigation, but it can't be viewed in isolation. For example, parallel proceedings have been brought in a number of countries in respect of the air cargo, trucks, vitamins, auto parts and power cable cartel decisions fundamentally if a business that deals on a global scale is found or alleged to have breached competition law then it may well be exposed in multiple jurisdictions and at multiple levels of the supply chain so no matter where you are based as an in-house lawyer in the regulatory competition or litigation teams you may have to coordinate litigation in multiple jurisdictions and need to be alert to risks, such as the potential for disclosure in one jurisdiction to trigger proceedings in other jurisdictions.
1: That's exactly right, Serena. Now, while the EU damages directive, which some of you may have heard of, harmonised some aspects of private enforcement across the EU in terms of minimum standards in a procedural framework for these damages claims, uh, most of which we expect to remain in place post-Brexit, In practice, there are still considerable differences and specialities between European jurisdictions, notably in relation to things such as the approach to disclosure and the use of expert evidence, as well as consolidation and centralisation of claims. So it's important to be aware of the scope of any potential litigation at an early stage.
0: Very important indeed. And I think that would be our key takeaway from this episode. Think about the litigation risk early especially if you're facing any public enforcement. Since James mentioned the B word, some of you might be wondering what will happen to competition litigation in the UK in the aftermath of Brexit. I don't have a crystal ball, but I think it's pretty safe to say that competition litigation is likely to continue to increase in the UK, despite some remaining uncertainties. Competition damages actions tend to have a long lead time in practice and in the short to medium term, we're likely to continue to see follow-on damages claims based on European Commission decisions taken before 31st of December 2020, that date of course being significant because decisions before then will continue to bind the UK courts. In the longer term, the fundamental aspects of the UK which make it attractive to claimants, claimant law firms and funders are unlikely to change and the CMA is ramping up and arming itself to be a powerful domestic regulator which will no doubt mean that we'll see significant numbers of domestic infringement findings which will bind the UK courts.
1: Now that brings us to the end of our first episode. Uh, Thank you to all of you for listening. If you're interested in finding out more, you'll find lots of helpful resources uh, on competition litigation on the Linklater's website. Our next podcast will be on litigation funding for competition damages claims, And we'll be joined by Simon Latham from litigation funder Augusta Ventures, who will provide a first hand insight into the funding market. Finally, please don't hesitate to get in touch with either of us if you have any questions or fancy a good discussion, and you can find our details on the Linklater's website.